you know, I started to examine where the eight-hour workday came from. And the reality is it was just sort of invented, you know, it was invented like 80 years ago. It hasn't always been that way. It's certainly not that way in, in different countries. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Grace for Impact. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn. And if you are just joining us, I interview entrepreneurs and leaders who are using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. Each guest is part of a series such as leadership or mindset. And today, it's on disruption. Disruption is definitely another buzzword in the entrepreneurial world, but it's closely related to impact. Impact meaning to strike forcefully, and disruption, meaning to interrupt an event, activity, or process. So what exactly will we be interrupting over the next few weeks? Well, we'll be interrupting your and my thinking, the way that we think about our lives and what we are capable of achieving. We are going to disrupt the norm. These next several guests will change the way you and I think and inspire us to develop creative, forward-looking solutions to today's and tomorrow's problems and obstacles. The second guest in the Disruption Series is Stefan Aristol. He is the CEO and founder of Tower Paddleboards, an online manufacturer, direct brand in the stand-up paddleboarding industry with a three-year growth rate of 1,853%. Tower was named the fastest-growing company in San Diego by the San Diego Business Journal and was featured in the 2015 Inc. 500 list of America's fastest growing companies. After appearing on ABC's Shark Tank and having one of the worst pitches ever where Stefan froze during his pitch, he secured an investment from Mark Cuban. Stefan was featured by People Magazine as one of Shark Tank's biggest winners. Stefan's company quickly became one of Mark Cuban's best performing investments from the popular show, and in early 2016, ABC returned to feature Tower Paddleboards in a nationally televised episode of Beyond the Tank. Tower began a disruptive, direct-to-consumer stand-up paddleboard company and has since evolved into a much more holistic lifestyle company. Today, Tower offers a growing array of beach lifestyle products sold and shipped directly to consumers at a fraction of traditional retail cost. Stefan's objective is to build Tower into the world's premier beach lifestyle brand, and he currently has plans to extend the Tower brand into many additional business units. As an entrepreneurial thought leader and online marketing expert, Stefan's insights have been published in the Washington Post, Inc. Magazine, Forbes, Entrepreneur, Fast Company, Mashable, and many other prominent business journals. While we certainly talk about Tower and his great business ventures, we spend the bulk of our time talking about his new book, The 5-Hour Workday, 
live differently, unlock productivity, and find happiness. You will learn a tremendous amount from Stefan in today's episode, but a few of the things that we chat about are why a five-hour workday makes sense for the type of work that we do today, how it makes businesses insanely productive and profitable, and why it makes employees happier, healthier, more productive, and more loyal. So bust out your pens and paper, don't be a podcast junkie, take some notes, and brace for impact. Stefan Arstall, welcome to the Impactpreneur Show. It's not the Shark Tank, but we are super pumped to have you to talk about your groundbreaking book and the impact that you are having in, in the world at this point, really. Thanks, Mike. It's an honor to be on the show. As uh, we were talking before the show, I always kick things off with the same question. And that question is, and it's actually a little bit of a different riff on the question. And it's, if you could pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be and how would you use it? Okay. Um, I think, you know, you've heard of x-ray vision, but I think, uh, you know, vision to see into the future, I think would be the superpower that I would like to uh, harness, um, I guess. And really as an entrepreneur, that's where as you get more and more experience, um, that's what you're, you're able to do. And I think it's, it's not just sort of gut instincts, but it's kind of like you've been here, you've seen this before, and then you can apply that to different types of businesses. You really can start to see around corners. And that's what I think the, the great entrepreneurs can do. That is uh, you know, definitely x-ray vision. The ability, ability to see into the future is something that a lot of people uh, would definitely aspire to have. How can entrepreneurs take existing tools, existing technology, which you talk a lot about in your book, and utilize those, those things to basically live out the essence of that superpower? Um, I think it's, it's when people think of entrepreneurship, they, a lot of times they associate it with, you know, uh, taking big risks for big rewards. And I don't think that's how sort of the best of the best entrepreneurs um, do it. Um, I think they're much more, I mean, they're not afraid of a risk, but they, they tend to take more calculated risks. What appears to be a risk to everybody else is not really a risk to them. Uh, and that is really the underlying basis of success, right? And even in the different businesses that I've pursued, you know, the ones where I was going into really unknown territory tend to fail, you know, in the ones where it was, hey, you know, I already know a lot about this. You know, I kind of know what's going to happen here. Those are pretty successful. And then the ones where it's like, hey, I know exactly what's going to happen here. You know, I can see the future in, in, in this um, in this business because it's very much like this other business I did. Or I can see the future of, you know, this scenario or this opportunity that's been presented to me because I've seen that before. And um, so it looks like we're taking, you know, wild risks, but these are really, you know, very calculated risks and there's nothing really risky in it. Is that kind of how you you know, before you launched Tower, you had this poker chip company. Is that, is that kind of, did you apply the same process to starting that poker chip company? That was exactly it. I was in, um, I was about six months into starting a portal for the green energy industry uh, when I started the poker chip company. So I was, you know, or no, I had the poker chip company, excuse me, already going. And then I was looking for other businesses. And it was a period of, you know, two, three, maybe four years where I was trying different businesses, failing with some, having, you know, little bits of success with others. And then I was, you know, six months into this green energy business, which I needed to raise money for. It was a kind of a foreign concept, but something I'd done 10 years earlier. And 
Then a buddy took me out paddleboarding and I looked at that and I said, holy cow, like this is a business exactly like poker, the poker chip business. It's sort of this rising trend, almost like a faddish trend that's growing up sort of out of nowhere. There's not a lot of you know, players in it online that are doing it well. I know exactly the steps to make here. I know this will be successful. So I basically shelved the green energy portal almost overnight and went all in on this poker chip uh, thing. And or all in on this, excuse me, the battleboard thing, and uh, it was you know it was very successful. And even when um, you know Shark Tank called and I went on Shark Tank, I think I brought that confidence into the uh, into the tank. Like these guys thought I was crazy. I'm like, <laughs> I guarantee you, this will be successful. I've done this before. This is this is not a problem. And they're like, well, you have no proprietary, um, you know, IP. Um, there's 80 competitors in your industry. Like there's no chance you're going to succeed. I said, it's guaranteed. Was, was Mr. <laughs> Wonderful the, uh, the hardest uh, investor? I mean, they were all hard on me. Um, you know, I don't know if you know the Baxter, if you've seen my Shark it was Tank the worst episode. Shark, it was the worst pitch in history. <laughs> it was. That's the pitch in history that still landed a deal. Uh, I contend there's some other bad pitches that, you know, didn't, didn't even get a deal, but there, people forget those real quickly. Yeah, so I had this just rough start where I sort of fell apart, forgot my sort of memorized pitch, and they all started tearing into me. And then I tried to gather myself and like did this sort of robotic, you know, regurgitation of this uh, memorized pitch. And it went horribly for you know four or five minutes. It was really quite embarrassing. Then, you know, they're all like, who is this clown? And then I started getting back into, okay, question and answer. I could do that fairly well. But within, you know, 10 minutes, three of them were out. And I was sort of in panic mode. I had to regather myself and say, okay, just here's, here's what I'm really going to do. Just out of curiosity, um, when you went into the Shark Tank, did you think you had to be a certain way and pitch a certain way? And that's what ultimately caused you to stumble. And then when you reverted back to who you who you are created to be, that's when you were like, listen, I have nothing to lose. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be who I am. And that's when you excelled. Is that where things turned the corner? Or was that that's a that's a pretty good uh description of what happened. But really, you know, going into the shark tank, so they called me out of the blue. I wasn't even raising money really at the time, but they called me, said, Hey, this show's on Friday night. I had never heard of Shark Tank. It was like season two at the time. And then they're like, oh, it's on ABC on Friday night. I'm like, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> but then when I went to, and they're like, okay, we got to pitch and ask for money. So I sent them in my little videotape and I asked for $5 million for 60% of the company. And this was a startup, right? But, you know, Mike, I have a, an MBA. And so I, you know, I know how to put together a business plan and go out there and try to attract money. I know like there's this no man's land between like half a million and 5 million that nobody would possibly invest. They're either going to be these small investments or these like large investments, the investor's always going to want control of the company. So this was my basis of this is how you pitch, right? A business. And then the, the producers just laughed at me and said, like, nobody's ever asked for this much money. Are you crazy? You don't even have a business yet. And so I said, okay. So then I went and watched the show, adjusted my pitch to asking for 300,000 for 10%. And then I was, you know, that was what I was, my strategy going in there was going to be that. And I get up to LA and I was sequestered in a hotel for like four days. And then I sort of started to learn more about what was going on here and sort of the rules of the, the tank. And I dropped it to 150,000 for 10%. So I figured I can always get more, but if I can't get at least that, I don't get any deal. And then the producers start sort of uh, coaching you up 
on to make it good TV, like they want you to be animated. And I think this is more gets to your question there. You know, they want a lot of energy in this and that. And I'm just not that person at all. And the other person I'm not is I can't memorize anything like, a, you know, memorizing two and a half minute pitch. I mean, I had to practice this thing a thousand times. That's all I did for four days. Um, <laughs> it's just not a skill set I possess. And uh, so I, and, but they really wanted me to do that. So I went in there and I tried that. The slideshow, you know, got screwed up. I lost my train of thought and it was over and I panicked. But, you know, I know my business cold. I'm, you know, pretty solid in sort of just the language of business. When I got to the Q&A round, I, I killed it, I would say, you know. Um, and I, I kind of always knew I could do that, but it was that's a that's a different skill set. And so you're you're exactly right. When I when I got away from this sort of artificial, like here's what we want you to do for TV, to where you know it was just like, okay, you're in a, you're in a group of business people here. Answer their questions and answer them well. I think that's such a really important point. Even though I didn't necessarily want to uh, make this about Shark Tank, but I think your experience on the Shark Tank. And and what, you know, they wanted you to do from a scripted point of view is really an important lesson in terms of knowing your strengths and really not uh, surrendering them to anybody. And that's something that is important for, for all of us to learn. And I think another really and I had never thought about this, but, you know, when people go into the Shark Tank at this point, it's oftentimes they they're asking for the moon. And that's why you see these investors, these sharks saying, how the heck did you come up with that valuation? And I, I loved your contrarian idea of, you know what, I could always get more money, but if I don't get any, then nothing's going to happen, obviously. That was a really interesting way to think about things. Yeah, and just the, the nature of Shark Tank. I mean, they never give anybody great valuations. So I came to the conclusion, you're going in there, you're going to give a chunk of your company away for free basically. Right. And you're going to try and leverage this show and leverage the, you know, the shark that you get. Um, if you're going into it with any ideals of you're going to get a true valuation or this is the best way to raise money. I mean, that's, that's a ridiculous thought. There's, you know, there's other ways to get better valuations. You know, I'm curious, you know, the, I, I always talk about mentorship and mentors are important because they can bridge the gap between where we are right now and where we want to be. Can you tell us a story or stories? I know you've got a lot of different mentors, including Mark Cuban. Can you tell us a story about a mentor that's impacted you and maybe shaped your outlook and how you approach being an entrepreneur today? You know, and a lot of entrepreneurs talk about, you know, mentors and stuff like that. I kind of thought that was just hogwash um, up until a certain point in my life. Uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, my father was sort of a, a solo entrepreneur, you know, an optometrist. And so it was, it was just him. You know, and you, I think I've always sort of said, well, he did successful. I can do that. But I think you can only reach a certain level when you do that, you know, and you sort of don't listen to anybody else. And then when I uh, really started to get into the business world, you know, had CEOs over me, I started to say, hey, maybe there is something I can learn from this person. And then certainly when I got Cuban on Shark Tank, I mean, the money was nice to get from him, but being able to bounce stuff off of a guy that's been there before, like, you know, he can really see around corners. So um, to be able to learn from that has been and has been hugely valuable. And then on a on a personal level, just um, and some of this is because of Shark Tank, and some of this is just as you progress in sort of the business world, um, you know, at, at conferences and these sort of meetings of internet or sort of like minded internet entrepreneurs. I started to meet a lot of these really incredible people 
and see what they were doing. And I found people that were doing well in business, but were also also very healthy and also had very healthy relationships. And I started to, you know, not ask them to be my mentor, but started to really look at what these people were doing and say, okay, you know, it's not just be good at business and then put everything else aside. You can be very, you know, multidimensional here. I need to learn from these people. So I sort of track and follow certain people. And, you know, that's what, you know, I, I push towards. And I think that's that's very important. You've got to have something better than you that, you that you're going after. And you sort of model yourself after. And one of the stories you tell in the book is about when you went to uh, Jason Gaynard's Mastermind Talks and uh, you were invited randomly just by happenstance to dinner with Mark Echo and a bunch of other crazy people like Tim Ferriss and AJ hey, Jacobs, Dan Martell. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it was a crazy group. <laughs> and uh, and so it's just about like, and they're not necessarily your mentors, but like these are icons in the entrepreneurial world. And you positioned yourself to be available for that opportunity. What are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, it's uh, and that is all about putting yourself in um, a position to be lucky. <laughs> you know, this is largely what business is about. It's positioning yourself and setting yourself up to be uh, to be lucky and to be able to capitalize on on opportunities. And a lot of that is putting yourself around the right people. And I think it's uh, networking is such a dirty word, and I just hate networking. Um, I'm you know so sort of a shy person. I don't like that, but I sort of force myself, you know, <laughs> to get out there and mix these people. Um, next week, I'm going to a thing called Summit at Sea. Um, have you been to that, Mike? No, but I've heard of it. Okay, definitely. Yeah. 3,000 entrepreneurs, all of these musicians and top CEOs. One of those things, not the most comfortable thing for me, but I sort of push myself to go out to these things because you know you never know who you're going to meet. And I don't think you approach it as, I want to meet this, this, this person because I want to get this, this, and this out of them. Just go and have a fun time, and you'll meet some people that are very like-minded. You never know what will transpire out of that. You know, it's kind of funny. You, you mentioned that like the, the uncomfortable part of, of networking or, or just putting yourself out of your comfort zone. I've been thinking the past several days about the concept of friction, you know, and how too much friction prevents us from realizing our full fullest human potential and capacity, but just the right amount of friction can propel us in the the most tremendous ways possible. If you think about like the fastest runners in the world, they need just the right amount of friction in order to to run the hundred meters in nine point eight seconds or whatever it is. But too much friction would would inhibit them from achieving the levels of success and speed and whatever that they're capable of. And it's the same thing in that story that that you just told you put yourself into a situation where you're slightly uncomfortable and there's friction there, but that friction enabled you, it propelled you into that elevator, which led you to reach it, connecting with Mark Echo and Tim Ferriss and Jacobs and all these people, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good thing is because a lot of these, you know, conferences, and I don't go to a ton of conferences, but you see the same people, it's almost like conference addicts, right? <laughs> And then there's like entrepreneur addicts that you never see at conferences. There's like the doers and the people who are learning, right? Yeah. <laughs> and 
You don't want to be too far on either side of that because then you get into this little world all of your own, you know, and you want to be in the middle. And it's probably uncomfortable for the conference people to say, okay, enough learning, do. And it's probably uncomfortable for the doers to say, okay, enough doing, you know, go out there and intentionally waste some time. And I, you know, I talk about this in my book too, like as we go into sort of this, this transformation into sort of the information economy, um, like a lot of productivity is not what you think of as at work. It's really sort of the playing around, the um, involving yourself in different experiences that allows you um, sort of ideation or to, to come across you know, ideas and then, and then work from there. If you just hole up in a basement, I mean, you don't have those experiences. You don't have those connections. You really can't be as you know powerful as you you should be in today's society. Absolutely, you know we're gonna get we're gonna start transitioning into the book. But before we do, I'm just curious, what's the biggest lesson you've learned thus far from Mark? Um, the, the biggest lesson I've learned from Mark is um, always protect your downside. You know, give up some upside and be just paranoid about your downside. And I didn't really expect this because as an entrepreneur, when he came on, it's like I I didn't have anything right. So. I'll take any wild risk. Doesn't matter. And I was constantly, you know, harping on him, saying, "Like Mark, look, we're leaving half a million dollars at the table here, and I need more money to go after this and do this." And he's like, "You know, quit this. You're obsessive about, you know, your upside. You choose to be worried about is going to zero. He's <laughs> like, forgive the upside and don't go to zero. And if you look at, um, you know, Cuban's life and his sort of trajectory of success, that's actually why he's successful. This sort of paranoia. And even today, I mean, he's very, I wouldn't call him tight." But he's, he's very like you know dollar conscious about things that you wouldn't think a guy with that much money and that many you know companies would be concerned about. But you know he's the guy that you know started with broadband.net. Um, you know the biggest IPO in the history of the world, I think, or run up on the on the price or something like that. So he did that at the right time. But then he was paranoid about this. Most people would just be like, okay, this is great, it's going to go on forever. So he immediately sold it, you know, to Yahoo, <laughs> double dipped. And then got out, you know, and got rid of all the shares before the whole market collapsed. When everybody else in the world, you know, or most people were just, you know, manic about, you know, this is never going to end. And they all got burned. And very few people got out, right? And he got out because of this paranoia that he has sort of taught me. And when I really look at entrepreneurship, I see that. Um, and I, I think it's a, that's a very valuable skill. Yeah, absolutely. I think too many people are just focused on the top line growth and not worried about, you know, the, the, the risks that are unforeseen uh, and, and real, you know, that people, that people face. I want to transition into the book, which the, the five-hour workday, live differently, unlock productivity, and find happiness. It's a phenomenal book. And as is this the true with everything in life, there's a series of events that, that ultimately lead up to one what I refer to as an impact moment. So we're uh, an awakening, an epiphany, so to speak. But what was the, the impact moment, that, that moment where the light, the light turned on and, and all of these series of events and experiences that you had led up to you saying, holy crap, we are going to totally buck the system. We've got this, this upstart company. We're growing. We've got a, crazy investor like Mark Cuban involved in the company. And we're going to go down to a five hour workday and still do everything and still grow. I mean, what was the moment that, that you were like, I got to do this. And then I got to write a book about it. 
Um, I think it was, I transitioned from a one-person company with buypokerchips.com to a company where I had employees and totally different, totally different skill set. And so in that skill set, it's how do we attract the best and the brightest people, get them on my team and empower them to go out there and do amazing things, right? And because we're uh, in Southern California in the action sports company, um, it was very easy for us to hire people. And then we had Mark Cuban come on. It's even more easy for us to hire people. And then we're on this just crazy growth trajectory, even easier to hire people. There came a certain point where I had great people and then I lost one. And a a girl that started working for me um, at $40,000 a year, straight out of college. um, And within two years, I doubled her salary to $80,000 a year. And she quit and went to work for another company. And then after a year with that company, then quit and went out on her own. And I'm like, how am I losing like, like good people, you know, if I'm jumping their salary up and I was like, the world has changed. Like these, these uh, sort of superstar people uh, can write their own ticket today. And if you want to keep those people and attract those people, you've got to give them a better deal. And as a small company, I can't really afford to pay these huge, you know, starting salaries, which is what, you know, the, the Yahoo's and the Google of the world are doing. They're starting kids out at $200,000 a year right out of college because they understand the world has changed too. And, you know, one great person can do the work of, you know, in Bill Gates's famous quote, you know, one great engineer is worth, you know, 10,000 mediocre engineers. We live under this power curve now. So how do I attract those great people? And then it was, it was also, we were transitioning from this paddleboard company. It was like, are we going to be, you know, a 10, $15 million paddleboard company? Or how do we become a $100 million company? What does that company look like? And to, to bridge that gap, we needed to not just be a transactional sort of e-commerce company, um, getting a lot of traffic and trying to close those sales. We needed to become this brand, right? And so I started reading a lot about branding, and I came across uh, this book called What Great Brands Do uh, by Denise Lee Yon. And it was a great book and really dialed in what all the top brands in the world do. And one of the top things was they sort of live, they do their brand as business, okay? So... As, as a paddleboard company, you know, we're telling people, go out there and enjoy your life and paddleboard and spend more time in nature and this. And here we are, a startup, you know, company, a block from the beach, working startup hours. And I was like, this is not, we're not living our brand as business. How do we do this? And so we just decided, hey, you know, what should we do? And we decided, hey, we're going to work 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. straight through, get rid of lunch. You know, we already did our business differently than everybody else in our industry or everybody was selling through retail. We said, what's everybody else doing? We're going to do the exact opposite. So if you apply that same principle to the, the HR world, what is everybody else doing? You know, they're serving gourmet dinners at 8.30 at night, trying to get their employees to clock 14-hour days. We're going to do completely the opposite. We're going to compress the day down. We're going to make people work when they're actually at work. No turn around Facebook, fantasy football, all of this stuff. We're going to squeeze them for time like it's finals week and give them their life back. So it's a better deal for employees, pay them the same or even pay them more. But then tell them, if you can't get the same amount of work done, we're going to fire you. That's what we did. You know, we rolled it out uh, about a year and a half ago, June 1st of 2015. We did a a three-month test. And I said, we're going to roll back in the fall, um, but I'm going to give you your summer back. You're you're going to work these compressed hours. If you can't figure out how to do this, you're going to be fired. I want to attract, you know, the people that just work at, you know, three times the speed of everybody else. And I want to repel those slow workers. So it was a recruitment and retention strategy, really in reaction to like losing a superstar employee and thinking, 
how am I going to build this big, big brand? I need to attract these incredible people. This is the model. Did you um, talk with Mark Cuban when, when you said, before you decided ultimately to, to drop it down to five hours a day, did you like say, hey, this is what I'm thinking? Um, well, this is another thing in having an investor, um, especially an investor like Mark Cuban, who has sort of, you know, he, he has a minority stake in the company, but he has a lot of power over, you know, the company just because of, you know, who he is and, you know, the support that he can give us. So if I ask him something and he, and he weighs in one way or the other, I kind of have to do that or I'm defying him, right. right? So, and early on, I would just ask him everything, whether I needed his opinion or not, right? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that was, that was bad. I already knew what I wanted to do. Why did I ask him? Because <laughs> he's looking at this business like, you know, a couple minutes and he makes a rash decision, right? Like I'm spending 24-7 on this. So he's a really super smart guy, but he's just not putting the time into it that I right. am. Now, so I adjusted my thinking after about a year or two. I'm like, okay, if I really need a second opinion here where he adds value, I'm going to ask him. If he doesn't, I'm going to do it and I'm going to let him know what, what I did. Okay, so the five-hour workday, I had a, I had a guess as to what his opinion would be on this. And so I just did it. And then I sort of, when we rolled it out, it happened to be the biggest month in the history of the company. We did like $1.4 million that month, which was our biggest month by $600,000. So I sort of rolled it out right then. I said, look, Mark, the biggest month ever, this, that, the company's doing great. And we're going to build this big brand. Here's what we're going to do. We're shrinking the workday down. It fits our, it dovetails perfectly with our brand. And we're going to leverage that, you know, as, you know, people see this, see what we're doing. We're going to sort of be this lighthouse of how you should work and how people think we should adjust the workday. And when they see that, they're going to love the company. And they're going to say, I like that company. When I go to buy a paddleboard, I'm going to buy from them. Or when I go to buy a beach, I'm going to buy from them. And I think that's really is where the world is going. You, you know, there's so many choices in the, in the products you get. You've got to give people a reason beyond just, hey, we've got a better price or, you know, we've got some, you know, newfangled, uh, you know, innovation quote that doesn't really do anything. Uh, you've got to give them a reason to do business. I totally with agree with that. I totally agree. With that's that. what the big brands do. And we weren't doing that. So that that's what this is all about. And, you know. While Mark doesn't like the five-hour workday and his whole brand is about, you know, outworking the competition, I mean, he totally gets it, um, like it, how it works for us and how this is. This is how you build these. Did he think you were nuts when uh, when you first told him? <laughs> no, no. He said, he said, sounds great. You know, that, that, I mean, and literally his responses are, you know, two words or something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, and so I was like, good. You know, we got the green light. We go with that. But, you know. Uh, you know, months later, I told him, hey, we're thinking about going into a bikini line and doing this. And he just sort of exploded. And he says, clearly, you've lost focus. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anything about bikinis. You're working a short work week. He's like, you know, maybe you should buy me out. <laughs> so I know it rubs him a little bit the wrong way. And he's not, you know, tweeting about our five-hour workday. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, like, Mark doesn't believe in the eight-hour workday. Right. He believes in the 15-hour yeah. workday. And that, that's how he sees it. And I've tried to explain to him, like, this is a baseline, right? If we've got stuff to do or new projects, you know, people here will still put in a 50-hour week. You know, after we rolled this out, we had one employee that voluntarily went and lived in a factory in China for three months, working 12-hour days. Oh, my gosh. A surfer has a five-hour workday, and he does that for a company, right? 
This is what you want to get. You want to get your employees to where they'll run through walls for you. And to do that in, in the modern world with knowledge workers, you can't whip them harder or give them a little more money. You have to do something meaningful to them. And if you give people their lives back to where they have from one o'clock till you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, every day during the week and their weekends, they have a work week better than most people's vacation. Absolutely. You have given them something huge and then you can ask them something and they're going to see, hey, this, this is something great that I have here. And it makes them like operate more like, you know, you or I, Mike, where we're entrepreneurs, you sort of control your own destiny. Work doesn't seem like work anymore. It's just this thing you do sometimes in the morning that, you know, affords you this extraordinary life. You know, there are some people, some in the entrepreneurial world, I think of Gary Vaynerchuk, and he spoke at the, at the mastermind talks that you went to, but he is, he's all about the hustle, the grind, the, the 20 hour, you know, work day to pursue, to create what you're doing. And there's a time and there's a place for that, you know, but it shouldn't be the baseline. And I, I totally agree with you. And, and one of the things I love, I, one of my favorite quotes from your book is we are enslaved with the wrong beliefs and it starts at the workplace. We are pri- prioritizing work, money, and possessions instead of health happiness, and relationships. It's time to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. Like that's a powerful statement. Yeah, and this is when I, when I really started, when we moved to, the, to like what, day, what work day are we going to change to? You know, I started to examine where the eight-hour work came from. And the reality is it was just sort of invented. You know, it was invented like 80 years ago. It hasn't always been that way. It's certainly not that way in, in different countries. And then I started to look at how like cultures have thought about work throughout history. And I think this is one of the most fascinating parts of, you know, my book, because a lot of people look at this like this is a business book, but there's really sort of a history lesson in here. You know, during the ancient Greek times, you know, one of the most you know, prolific, you know, societies of, you know, in throughout human history, throughout, you know, sort of ancient Greece and for a thousand years afterwards, work was considered a curse. Like you were considered unsuccessful if you did work. And you compare that to today, where it's like, you're defined by how hard you work and how many hours you put in as if that is the only thing that is important in life. And as if it's always been that way, like when I question this with sort of the five hour workday, the reason we've got, I mean, in the press on this book has, has exploded. We've got you know, hundreds of articles in over 20 countries and, you know, in, in Germany, like in every major paper, they're calling me like the world's best boss. I mean, this thing just exploded, but most of the press I'm getting is because they have this sort of uh, just instant reaction to this to say, to disqualify this. They, that is ridiculous. You know, we want to bring this guy on and prove him wrong. <laughs> and then I have to argue my way out of it. And when people actually, you know, will digest an entire article I read or, or even better, the book, they'll start to see, you know, maybe this guy's onto something. And uh, that's been sort of an interesting arc to go through. You know, I, I think that, it's really critical to talk about what Dan Sullivan refers to as the results economy. You know who Dan Sullivan is, strategic coach? Um, it, the name sounds familiar. He, I don't run, know he runs a, a, a really a world-renowned coaching organization for CEOs and entrepreneurs around the world called Strategic Co- Coach. And he is often talking about the results economy, which you allude to in your book when you talk about instead of focusing on how long people worked, how many hours people worked. We need to focus on how much work actually 
got done. And the proof is in the pudding. And and just so listeners aren't don't don't think that you're just blowing smoke, what changes have have you seen to your bottom line and to your employee morale and to your uh, turnover since you implemented the five hour workday? Yeah, and first I want to address sort of that, that great point that you brought up earlier. That it really in this new economy, it's really all about you know productivity, and yet we still manage by hours. But I was I was on the Adam Carolla show, and we were he was laughing about this. He's like, yeah, he's like every company I've been in, I can just like line my employees up in a row and just you know from like most productive to least productive, and just go down the line and say like, yeah, this guy we can we can do without him. This guy, no, we need to keep him. This guy we can do without. Every company has that. He's like, some people we can get rid of. And you know what? We're not even going to replace them <laughs> because we really don't need to because they're doing nothing, yeah. right? Yeah. And we've just accepted this in modern society. Well, they're putting in an eight-hour day. They're putting in an eight-hour day. They do better work than them. So we're going to pay them a 30% you know, premium. That's ridiculous. And you can't do that in this new world where we work under this, this sort of power curve. So it's really about getting rid of those lazy people or having them say, you need to retrain or you need to figure out how to work faster or you're not going to be on our team. And then, uh, so, so what have the results been in our company? A lot of people, you know, they, they even read the book and they say like, okay, well, you know, you wrote about this five-hour workday, but you need to give me like a, you know, a business plan or a sort of a roadmap of how to implement this. Like, how do I do it in my company? But when we rolled it out in our company, what you're doing is you're putting the power and the pressure on individuals. Like we were a company of seven then, we have like nine employees now. Um, you just tell them simply, like, you only have from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. to get all of the work that you were doing before done, or you're going to be fired. You need to figure it out. Okay. So immediately they get rid of the waste. And then they start to identify tools because this is the same scenario that basically every entrepreneur faces that doesn't have a boss over the shoulder. It's like, I just get my work done and then I get out of there. It doesn't matter. I'm not managed by the clock at all. Right. And the faster I get my work done, the more free time the more extraordinary life I have. So you've created that same circumstance. So in doing that, what you're doing with a small company like ours is you're turning everybody into their own little productivity expert. And, and, it, and it works magic kind of like in our shipping department without any like managerial oversight. You know, before this, they to ship a package, it took them like five minutes per package. That was sort of their average. And then I said, okay, just, we'll just figure out how to do it faster. And the number of packages is going up for these guys. And we, have no, we haven't added any headcount over there. And so what they did is first they had software that they were using to ship that, that we we're already using. It's not like we're a real old school company, but they figured out how to use that software better. They really figured out how to push the limits of that software. And then they totally reorganized the warehouse, put the shipping center in the middle of the warehouse instead of on the end of the warehouse. They organized everything and everything had its, its spot. So they got rid of a lot of the disorganization and they reduced it down to like 2.6 minutes per package without me doing anything, without any managerial oversight. And it was just, it was, you know, productivity just sitting on the shelf, you know, waiting to be done. But there's no incentive for these people to do it. You can't say, you know, you can't whip them harder. You can't say, I'm going to pay you more money. I want you to figure out how to ship faster because you're not giving them anything. But as soon as you say, hey, you guys can go surfing at one o'clock, you got to figure it out. You know, <laughs> that's the motivation. And it happens across everything. So there's a, there's a website that accompanies the book, uh, fivehourworkday.com. And on there, you can go and download, you know, the first 48 pages of the book for free. You, know, you can put in your, your email address, whatever. But you can also get this 30 to 40 page document that outlines, I think it's like 38 productivity tools 
that I've identified over the last 10 years working like this. And, you know, my company has identified over the last year and a half. Um, and now every, when we find a tool that works for us, we share it with everybody else. And this, you know, document sort of details all of these tools, which are really, you know, the secret sauce to how you work faster. And it's across all disciplines. I mean, there's probably, you know, four tools in there for your HR function. There's a couple of tools in there for your sourcing function. There's a bunch of tools for your marketing. There's a bunch of tools for your communication. There's, there's tools for, you know, everything. And the funny thing is the people who are using these tools, who I usually learn these tools from, are my entrepreneurial buddies who have an incentive to use this. You go into corporate America, they haven't even heard of these tools, some of these tools. And they've been around for five, 10 years. There's no incentive to use them. You know, there's a, you know who Andrew Luck is? He's an NFL quarterback. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, listening to an interview with him recently, and I love this quote, and it fits perfectly with what you just were talking about. Pressure is a privilege. Definitely. And, and so you've got these, these employees and yourself that have five hours to get the equivalent of eight hours work done, and that's a lot of pressure. But there is a privilege, a massive privilege on the opposite end of that, of all of this time to go work on their personal development, to exercise, to spend time with their family, to, to do whatever they want, to even work more if they wanted to, if they had a project, they were like in a flow state on, you know, I, I would imagine there's a, a heightened sense of urgency and an electricity around the office every day. Yeah. I mean, there's a little more sense of urgency. There's a little more sense of, you know, let's, let's not waste our time. And, you know, that quote by Locke is, is interesting. So the, there's a quote in my book by Henry Ford. And Henry Ford, you know, is the guy who basically didn't invent the eight-hour workday, but he basically wrote, was the first person to roll it out across a large industry. Um, and they experimented a while, and then he rolled it out. And uh, in an interview that, I, that is in the book, his quote is, you know, the pressure builds better means, basically. Mm -hmm. So he went, they went from working, you know, 10 to 16 hours a day in these factories with, you know, no machinery and stuff like that. The machinery came along, all of a sudden, you know, productivity went 10x off the chart. But then you had these workers that had to keep up with this machinery 10 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. I mean, it was it was dangerous. I mean, like one half of 1% of U.S. population was dying or being maimed on the factory floors in the early 1900s. Oh, my gosh. Henry Ford, like, looked at this and he had a real problem here. It wasn't just the people who died, but it was his turnover. I mean, his turnover was like 60 or 70 percent every year a real problem for a business. So he said, look, the world has changed. I'm going to, how are we going to react to this? So he said, look, I'm going to give these workers a better deal. I'm going to shorten the workday down because we're our productivity is off the charts. I'm going to give them their lives back and I'm going to double the daily wage. And so that's what he did in like, I think it was 1913, 1914. And that, and he put pressure on people to basically you know, achieve their jobs better. And so what happened, the net effect of that was within two years, he doubled the profitability of Ford Motor Company by doing this. And in seven years, he grew uh, market share to 61% of the worldwide you know, auto market share. Well, everybody else was like really reticent to change this. And people were even like, oh, Henry Ford's going to ruin everything for us. You know, we've got this great deal where we can just you know, get these workers working crazy hours. And you know, the robber baron class was basically born during this period. And they thought he was going to ruin everything. Um, but what he did was he ushered in sort of the consumer economy and he took over the auto industry. You know, fast forward 100 years, this is the exact same thing that's happening now. But today, it's not for you know, physical labor with machinery. 
but it's for you know knowledge workers and mental labor and you know with software. And so the software is now doing heavy lifting. And I would say the increase in productivity is even more. You know, all of my entrepreneurial friends are basically you know a thousand times more productive than we were 20 or 30 years ago. But if you look at the you know the US Bureau of Labor Statistics and you look over the past 40 years, productivity is up 80%. And wages are up. I think it's like 13% or maybe it's 11%. And most people look at that statistic and they say, well, this is ridiculous. Like workers are getting screwed here, right? Productivity is way up. Why are the workers getting screwed? And that's the complaint, right? I see that number and I say, yeah, sure, workers are getting screwed. But 80%, are you kidding me? Like 30 years ago, I used to go into my mom's office and she had a typewriter and a phone attached to the wall on her desk and the whiteout. I mean, how did she do anything? It's just, and you're saying we're 80% more productive now? Like at my office, if you know the internet uh, goes out, we just go home. There's no point to even be there. You know, we, we still have smartphones in our, in our pocket. They're still connected to the internet. We have supercomputers on our desk. And we're like, it's not even worth being here. And you're going to tell me that the American workforce is only 80% more productive? This, everybody is just collectively wasting their time. And as employees, and a boss, you're wasting my time. You know, the bosses should be pissed off, but they're not, you know, and workers should be pissed off. And they, they kind of are, but they, they're not revolting. And I just think, uh, you know, it really, there needs to be a, a, a sea change here. And that's really what the five-hour work is Yeah, about. it's such, you know, inter- interruption is the enemy of all productivity because you, uh, you, you get in, you're working on a project, you get interrupted, you have to go tackle what you were interrupted for. And then it takes on average 15 to 30 minutes to kind of get fully back in the, to the place where you were working before. And then in comes along another interruption. And so I would imagine when you implemented this five hour workday that people are so protective about their time because they have a project or a task that they have to bang out in five hours. And so I, I would imagine that interruptions, you don't have people walking into your office asking you silly questions anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of this game is just analyzing your inputs and your outputs and analyzing, like, who is wasting my time and, and figuring out ways to not let them waste your time. Like, you know, Mark Cuban, my business partner, he doesn't use a phone. So I've been on, you know, in, he's been my investor for over four years, maybe even five years now. I've never spoken on the phone with him once. You know, I've sent him $750,000 in checks. He won't take my phone call. <laughs> This is, this is how a guy like that can manage 100 companies. And I can email him any time of the night. And he'll get back to me in 10 minutes. You know? So he's moved to this sort of asynchronous communications you know, method that he can do it on his own time. And he can just sort of knock out communications and then get back to his life. You can't run 100 companies unless you do something like that. And then you have you know, all of these, these, these other workers, which are you know, struggling to make $50,000, $60,000 a year that are working, you know, 15 hour days and they have no time for their family and anything like that. And I'll say that to manage is one job, not a hundred companies or, you know, and they're doing it wrong, you know? And they're, they're saying, I got to answer every phone call. I've got to get emails back as soon as somebody sends it to you. You're letting everybody else interrupt. Yeah, that's really where you start is you say, you take back your time and you start dedicating time to your tasks. And as an entrepreneur, if you don't do that, you go out of business. So I've sort of learned this over the last um, you know, 10 years. 
And so I get into these sort of concentration things. Like I have to put an alarm, like, you know, we had a, a meeting at a certain time today. I have to put like an alarm clock time on that to make that meeting. And I hate setting meetings because a meeting in itself is an interruption. Right. right? Because if I don't set an alarm clock, I'll literally look up and say, it's an hour and a half past that meeting that I just missed. <laughs> because that's how you're successful in today's. You have to have these, this focused concentration where everything else is tuned out. And once you can learn to do that, you really have superpowers and you can do in two to three hours what it takes most people several days. A moment ago, you mentioned the word family and how people are missing out on, on family time and relationships and experiences. How has your relationship with your family improved since impact uh, since uh, launching this? And I'm sure your employees have stories that they've shared with you as well. Yeah, so there's there's two sides to this. When most people hear the five-hour workday, they assume it's this sort of socialistic crap. And they're like, uh, that's why, you know, most American and especially American media that I, I present this to, they just discount it offhand. Um, overseas, you know, it's uh, it's more open. In Europe, it, it was hugely, you know, popular because of, I think, the socialistic aspect to it. But where it really blew up was in, um, in Germany. And they see themselves and pride themselves as the most productive people in the world. So they saw this from a capitalistic perspective. And I, as an owner, you know, and I'm an employee too, um, but as an owner and an employee, I see it from both sides. So this is a very capitalistic move on my, on my part. You know, this is about recruitment and retention. It's about getting the best people on my team. It's about winning business from my competitors. But on the flip side of it, I see this sort of you know, socialistic element to it. Like work is not the point of life. Point of work is to finance this, you know, this incredible life for us. And a lot of the the ills that have come out of, you know, the American society where we've become very one dimensional, and it's it's all about what do you do, how much money do you make. I mean, if you go out and meet somebody, that's the first thing they ask you is, what do you do for a living? If you go, and I've traveled around the world, um, you know, ex- extensively, like backpacking, traveling, where you're not doing anything for three months, they never ask you that question, and it's so much better of a life. And it's so much more interesting conversation. People sort of become human again. So I've had both of these experiences. And really, that's why, you know, this fit perfectly. Uh, you know, in my mind, it made perfect sense. So this adjustment to this different workday opens up your life where you can now spend more time with your relationships, spend more time with your kids, spend more time on your health. I mean, like, you know, 30% of the U.S. population is like morbidly obese. It's crazy, Right. Spend more time on your hobbies and not just be this one dimensional um, person. I think we really got to sort of retrain ourselves to do that. So, you know, and like you said, it is different for everybody because, you know, if you open up time and the people can do whatever they want to, some people are in, you know, new relationships. There's two people in our company that were, you know, uh, engaged in the last, you know, month. So they're spending, you know, more time on their relationships. You know, I have a son. So, you know, since we've rolled this out, like last year, for the first time ever, I saw like every one of his baseball games. He had like 30 of these baseball games. They're always like at four o'clock, you know, on a Thursday or something. <laughs> Before, I assumed like if you're going to be this high power business guy and, you know, we were the fastest growing company in San Diego, Power Paddle Boards was. And then last year we were number 239 on the Inc. 500. I always assumed that you have this trade off. You can be that guy or you can be sort of a good father. But the reality is in this new world, you can do both. And, um, you know, and different people do different things. Like I started going to the gym for the first time in my life after the age of 40, because I was basically bored. I had all this extra time. What are you going to do? You know, so that's kind of what you're trying to do. You're trying to create boredom and then figure out, okay, what do I really want to do with my time? 
Uh, I think work is just, it's, it's kind of a lack of creativity uh, when people just think, well, I don't know what else to do. I have no friends. I, uh, you know, I put my family aside. I might as well work because I don't know what else to do. That's what America has become. Yeah, a lot work becomes their hobby, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's a tragedy. You know, I, I think that what you just shared is incredibly powerful and, uh, and a lesson that we can all take from. And I, and I hope that people do go out and, and buy the book. Uh, if there's one thing you want people to remember from our conversation today, what would it be? Um, I think just really that the, the world, I mean, truly has changed. I don't think people understand the extent to how much the world has changed in the last 20 years. Um, it's, it's, it sounds counterintuitive, but you really can, you know, get more done by working fewer hours um, because of how the world has changed. As you put that pressure on, you will identify how the world has changed and those tools that are out there. You'll use those tools and you'll accomplish more than the other people that are working, you know, two times as long as you, three times as long as you, because you're using, you know, better tool sets and you're identifying better methods. You're thinking about how you work, not just working. And that's the critical point. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show today. I appreciate you taking the risk and stepping outside of your comfort zone and and writing this book and taking the time and putting all the resources to do so because uh, I think that there's a lot of people that feel this way, that think this way, but haven't uh, taken the steps to put it down on paper and look at all the resources. So where can we send people to connect with you to learn more about the five-hour workday and and buy the book. I mean, you can find all my contact information. Uh, I mean, it's very open on the internet on you know towerpaddleboards.com. Um, and then, like I said, we have a website that accompanies the book, fivehourworkday.com. Get an email on there. I'm I'm on Twitter at Stefan Arstall. I'm I'm pretty open, so you know anybody can email me uh, pretty freely. Right on, Walt. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and being part of our series on disruption. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Stefan, thank you for being a guest on the show today and for challenging our thinking and sharing the, the results your company and employees have had since implementing the five-hour workday at Power Paddleboards. In case you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 49 for all the key points and highlights of our conversation. And while you're there, please be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Until next time, go make an impact. Mm-hmm.